Welcome back to Ghosts of Arlington, and thank you for joining me for episode 105, The Ultimate Wingman. I know that this podcast is dedicated to people buried at Arlington National Cemetery, and with a few exceptions, I have stuck to that self-imposed rule. I also plan on continuing to mostly abide by that one rule, but since only Sith deal in absolutes, I am making an exception for the next two people that will be highlighted on the podcast. Since the last two long story arcs have been partially or entirely about Medal of Honor recipients, Captain Rocky Versace and Chief Michael Novacell Sr., it got me thinking about the two Medal of Honor recipients that I have had the chance to meet and briefly talk with during my life, including one who lived right around the corner from me for a decade before I even knew about him or his story. Both these men have since passed on, and both are interred in the Idaho State Veterans Cemetery in Boise, where I also hope to end up when my time on Earth is through. Bernard Francis Fisher was born on January 11, 1927, in San Bernardino, California, into a family active in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. His parents were farmers in Utah, but would frequently go to California to work when it was too cold to farm back home. He lived in California for all of two weeks before his parents decided that it was time to return to Clearfield, Utah, where he was raised and educated. Growing up, Fisher enjoyed building and flying model airplanes. In his teens, a member of his church got a private pilot's license, and when this man asked the kids if anyone wanted to go up for a flight, young Bernie was the first in line. After his first flight, he said it was the greatest thing he had ever experienced. He was just old enough to enlist in the Navy and serve for a short while before the end of World War II. He served as an aviation machinist's mate first class for just over a year. After his discharge from the active duty Navy, he joined the newly formed Idaho Air National Guard in 1947 and began attending Boise State Junior College. In 1949, Fisher transferred to the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, but before he could finish his undergraduate degree, he received an Air Force commission. In 1951, he left the Idaho Air Guard and returned to active duty. After completing pilot training, he served as a jet fighter pilot in the Air Defense Command until 1965, when he and four other pilots in his squadron 
volunteered for duty in Vietnam. From July 1965 through June 1966, he flew 200 combat sorties in the World War II vintage A-1 Echo Sky Raider, a.k.a. the SPAD, as a member of the 1st Air Commando Squadron out of Pleiku, South Vietnam. On March 10, 1966, then Major Fisher was flying with four other SPADs, supporting troops in contact with the enemy in the Asha Valley near the Lao border, a special forces camp in the area with 17 Americans and more than 350 South Vietnamese soldiers, had been overrun by more than 2,000 North Vietnamese regulars. The Green Berets required assistance, but the narrow avenue of approach to the beleaguered friendly troops was dotted by lethal enemy anti-air weapons and shrouded by cloud cover. Fisher and his flying companions had been ordered to strike positions on the ground, but the cloud cover made it nearly impossible to find targets. Fisher spied a momentary break in the clouds that allowed him to get his bearings and take a flight of four Sky Raiders down into the valley. The pilots switched over to FM radio so they could talk directly with the ground units and were told about three mortar bunkers in the camp where the friendlies had taken refuge. The aircraft were free to strike anything and everything else. That's where the enemy was. Fisher immediately banked left and came into a final approach right over the camp, opening up with his four 20mm cannons on a strafing run. In an interview decades later, Fisher described a strafing run as a tactic to force the enemy to get up and get out of an area by convincing them that if they stick around, quote, they're gonna get dead. Once Fisher's strafing run ended, his wingman, Captain Francisco Paco Velasquez, successfully followed with a run of his own. Lieutenant Colonel Dafford Jump Myers followed next, but his plane was hit as he pulled out of his run. Myers' Sky Raider burst into flames, dropped out of the sky, slid on its belly about 800 feet, nearly 250 meters, on a steel runway inside the camp, hit a dirt bank, and exploded. Fisher stared at the flaming wreckage for a moment before calling the crash in. He reported that there was a pilot down and that, based on the wreckage fire, he likely didn't survive. Then, to Fisher's astonishment, the wind shifted the direction of the fire in time for him to see Myers run across the plane's wing and jump down into a ditch looking for cover. Fisher sprang into action. He flew a low pass to get eyes on Myers, low enough that the two men were able to wave at one another. He then called in another report saying that Myers was in fact alive and that a helicopter was needed immediately to rescue the downed flyer. After being assured that help was on the way, Fisher rejoined the fight, but ten minutes later, with the situation on the ground growing steadily worse, there was still no sign of the promised helo. Seeing that enemy soldiers were now within 200 yards or 180 meters of Myers, Fisher knew something had to be done 
and that they could no longer wait for a helicopter. Fisher said a quick prayer, or in his own words, I counseled with my Heavenly Father. That's about the time I realized we had to get him out of there some way, because he wasn't going to make it otherwise. Despite opposition from his command post, Fisher radioed in that he was going to land his Sky Raider and pick up Myers himself, even though the runway wasn't long enough for him to properly land. Fisher came in hard and fast and soon ran out of runway. He damaged his spad's right wing, but after he finally came to a stop, he was able to turn the plane around and taxi back down the runway 800 feet. When he reached Myers, the latter jumped from the ditch, waving his hands so Fisher would see him. After Fisher hit the brakes, Myers made a run for the airplane. It was at that time that Fisher realized his plane was being hit with intense small arms fire. The enemy soldiers that had been closing in on Myers were now closing in on him, too. After waiting and waiting and waiting for Myers to arrive, Fisher assumed that he must have been hit by the incoming fire. Unwilling to leave a fallen comrade, Fisher locked the brakes and opened his canopy, preparing to climb out of the plane. Just then, he saw Myers making his way up the side of the plane, and Fisher pulled Myers into the cockpit and pushed the plane full throttle before either man could strap in. While the rescue was underway, Fisher's wingman, Paco Velasquez, and two other Sky Raiders, piloted by Danny Haig and John Lucas, a.k.a. Luke, flew close air support over Myers' location. Years later, Haig recalled, Bernie Fisher embarks upon a most incredible historic aviation feat. He elects to land and rescue Myers under heavy enemy fire. They had become extremely vulnerable targets while on a steel-plated runway, their chance of survival was slim. The three men in the air made multiple strafing passes to try and protect their comrades on the ground. Even after all three ran out of ammunition, they continued to make dry runs. They were willing to hold off the enemy by any means available, even choosing to simply momentarily scare them with engines screaming low-level flybys. Haig continues, It was like flying inside Yankee Stadium with the people in the bleachers shooting at you with machine guns. Bernie's aircraft, bullet-ridden, barely took off and headed for home with jump on board. Paco was without a radio, his plane hit by two dozen bullets. Luke's aircraft was hit by enemy ground fire and he had flight instrumentation loss and hydraulic system damage. I guided him and assured his safe landing at Da Nang, the nearest airfield 20 miles away. Somehow, Haig's aircraft escaped the ordeal without a scratch. When asked how he managed that, he often joked, Oh yeah, while it was going on, I was over the next hill having a cup of coffee. When Haig and Lucas safely landed, they were met by questioning Air Flight Operations Commanders. The first thing the pair said to them was, You are not going to believe what we are about to tell you. Haig always spoke highly of Bernie Fisher. 
a great man, a fellow Idahoan. Haig was from Kellogg, Idaho. Bernie always included Luke, Paco, and me in any recognition or tributes that he has received. For his part, after pulling Myers up into his aircraft, Fisher was able to skirt the debris and major bomb damage to the runway and get the plane back in the sky. But until it lifted off, he wasn't sure his Sky Raider would still be able to fly. Myers had just been promoted to lieutenant colonel that morning and confessed to Fisher that after he went down, he didn't think he would live long enough to pin on his new rank insignia. Well, he did. The promotion party was held that evening. This sort of thing was seemingly all in a day's work for Fisher. Just the day before, he had earned the Silver Star while flying support for the same battle. The rescue at Asha was similar to an event in World War II. In 1944, P-38 pilot Dick Wilsey was forced down in Romania after his plane was damaged, and he was rescued from capture when fellow pilot Dick Andrews landed his P-38 on a grassy field and Wilsey squeezed into the cockpit of the single-seat plane and flew safely back to base. In a remarkable coincidence, both Wilsey and Andrews were also connected to Fisher's rescue of Myers. Wilsey was the commanding officer of Myers 602nd Commando Squadron, and Andrews flew top cover over the battlefield during the entire rescue. Fisher left Vietnam in June 1966, and on January 19, 1967, he was presented the Medal of Honor by President Lyndon B. Johnson at the White House. What follows are LBJ's words at that ceremony. We've come here to the East Room this morning to honor Major Bernadette Fisher of the United States Air Force. He is the first air officer to win the Medal of Honor in Vietnam. Major Fisher has won this honor the nation's highest honor, because of uncommon gallantry in the face of death. The action for which we salute him today took place during a very bitter and a very bloody battle. Yet uh, in that battle it did not involve taking a life, but did involve saving a life. The man that Major Fisher rescued Lieutenant Colonel Alfred Myers is here with us today. And I should like to point out that this desire to save lives instead of taking lives is not just confined to Major Fisher. It is rather, I think, typical of all of our men in Vietnam. It is particularly true of those who served with Major Fisher in the most difficult air war in the history of the United States. Like Major Fisher, these men fight with determination, but they hate the killing and they hate the destruction and they hate the waste that are products of war. Like uh, Major Fisher, all of these airmen have 
accepted an extra risk. And it's not the hazard of flying in the mountainous, jungle-covered country, though that is very difficult. It is not the threat of an aggressive, well-equipped, and fanatical enemy, though this is very great. These men are conducting the most careful and the most self-limited air war in history. They are trying to apply the maximum amount of pressure with the minimum amount of danger to our own people. There are no fixed fronts in Vietnam. Nothing that really separates friend from enemy or civilian from military. Through Major Fisher and Lieutenant Colonel Myers and the other flyers in that March mission who are here today, Captain Francisco Vasquez, Captain John Lucas, Captain Dennis Hayes, I would like through all of these gallant men to honor the men of the United States Air Force that are serving us in Vietnam and in that area. Those men in that Air Force are helping us to win a very difficult war. They are helping us to defeat a very treacherous enemy. They are helping a young nation to be free and to be born and to be independent. They are helping their own nation, the United States of America, to honor a pledge and to keep a commitment and to make its word good and to be treated and trusted and respected in its alliances. They deserve the best their nation can offer them because they are the best of this nation. Thank you very much. The Medal of Honor's design has evolved over the years, but currently there are three medals one for each of the military departments of the Department of Defense. The Navy's current version, which is also the version presented to those in the United States Marine Corps as a member of the Department of the Navy, was first used in 1942. One member of the U.S. Coast Guard received the Medal of Honor for actions during World War II and was posthumously presented the Navy's medal. The Army's current version of the medal was first introduced in 1944. Due to its historic connection to the U.S. Army, Air Force personnel were initially awarded the Army's version of the Medal of Honor, but that changed in 1965 when the Air Force designed its own version of the medal. As part of the Department of the Air Force, any members of the recently formed Space Force to receive the Medal of Honor will get the Air Force version. Bernie Fisher was the eighth person to receive the Medal of Honor for actions in Vietnam and the first person to receive the Air Force's newly designed medal. He was also the first living Air Force pilot to receive the award. All Air Force pilots so honored before him had had the medal bestowed posthumously. After Vietnam, Major Fisher returned to the Air Defense Command and flew jet interceptors. 
he served with two fighter interceptor squadrons in West Germany. In October 1969, he became the operations officer for the 87th Fighter Interceptor Squadron at Duluth International Airport, Minnesota, before becoming the senior Air Force advisor to the 25th Air Division at the Gowan National Air Guard Base in Boise, Idaho, in June 1971, where he had begun his Air Force career nearly 25 years earlier. He served in that position until he retired from the Air Force in June 1974 with the rank of Colonel. Upon his retirement, Fisher and his family settled in Cuna, Idaho, a small agricultural town about 20 miles southwest of Boise, where he lived with his wife Reala until her death in 2008. In 1981, he was a Republican candidate for governor, but that was during the lone period of time since the end of World War II when Idaho elected a Democrat governor. Much of his retirement was spent traveling the country speaking to various groups about his military service, and specifically that fateful day in 1966 when he saved Jumpmeyer's life and earned the nation's highest medal for valor. In 1999, the Military Sealift Command container ship, originally named the MV Seafox, was renamed the MV Major Bernard F. Fisher. I briefly met Colonel Fisher at the Idaho Military Museum at Gowan Field in early 2006. The museum was holding a ceremony accepting the physical Medal of Honor that had recently been awarded to a Civil War veteran who ended up living most of his post-war life in Idaho. The announcement of the ceremony also indicated that Bernie Fisher would be in attendance. A few months earlier, I had given my dad a book for Christmas or his birthday or some such occasion that profiled all the living Medal of Honor recipients as of its publication in 2005 and I thought it would be cool if I could get Bernie Fisher to autograph the section of the book with his Medal of Honor experience in it. I was also a brand new father. Mrs. Ghosts of Arlington had given birth to our eldest just a few months earlier. The nearly 20 years that have passed since this encounter have dulled the memory a little, either because my wife was working or I wanted to give her a break from the child, I'd like to say it was the latter reason to paint a better picture of myself, but it was likely the former. I bundled up Junior and brought him with me to the ceremony. After the formal ceremony, with large Medal of Honor book in one hand and baby carrier in the other, I approached Colonel Fisher and introduced myself as a Boise State Army ROTC cadet. I showed him the book and asked if he would be willing to sign it for my dad. Of course, he was more than happy to do so and said as much. And then he said, But before I do, tell me about this guy and pointed to my son. And that, dear listener, is what I will always remember about Colonel Bernie Fisher. He was an honest-to-goodness American hero who had done some incredible things. But when I asked him about those things, instead of wanting to talk about himself, he wanted me to tell him about my newborn. So I did just that. 
I spent a few minutes fawning over my firstborn to this experienced father of six. When I said it was quite an adjustment for my wife and I, he smiled and said that it certainly was, but it was a wonderful adjustment worth making. Looking back now with 18 years of hindsight and two more children added to the mix, he was absolutely right. I will always be thankful that Colonel Fisher took the time to talk with me and to eventually sign the book, but I am most grateful that rather than finding common ground as him as a veteran and me as a soon-to-be active-duty soldier, he chose to find common ground with me as a fellow father. Two years after my encounter with him, Fisher finally received his diploma from the University of Utah. If you will recall, I said earlier that shortly before he earned his diploma, the Air Force commissioned him and called him to active duty. He had actually been a few credits shy of finishing his schooling. In May 2008, he was officially recognized for his past academic achievements and his decorated military career. Air Force Colonel Bernard Francis Bernie Fisher died on August 16, 2014 in Boise, Idaho at the age of 87. He is buried in the Idaho State Veterans Cemetery in Section 12-1-142. His A-1 Sky Raider is currently on display at the National Museum of the United States Air Force in Dayton, Ohio, a museum I hope to visit next summer, in part to pay honor to this ultimate wingman. If you need more Ghosts of Arlington content in your life, there are pictures related to every episode on the website, www. .ghostsofarlingtonpodcast.com You can help others learn about the podcast by leaving a 5-star rating and review at Apple Podcast or wherever you listen. If you really want to make my day, refer the show to a friend. And remember, fear not death, for the sooner we die, the longer we shall be immortal. <laughs>